0: Please take your Bible and open it up to um, the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. We are really getting there and it's been an incredible study and I almost don't want to leave uh, 1 Corinthians because it's so rich and so we'll take a few weeks to get ourselves through this last chapter and see all the, the nuggets that are here and, um, and all that. Now what a study this has been and it might seem like this is awkward or out of place because Paul goes from um, the heights of the resurrection, the way up there, talking about the resurrection, the peak of the mountain. And we come way down here. I mean, you know, he's... He goes from talking about the future resurrection of all that all believers have in Christ. No more death. No more sting from it. It's all swallowed up in victory. And So our future is, you know, victory and triumph. Immortality. Bodily raised and glorified in that body. Looking like Jesus Christ. Paul goes for that mountain peak to talk about this in the next verse. Now concerning the collection. Money. I mean, it's like we're up the mountain peak of joy and we come to the valley of despair, right? We're going to talk about money now, you know. How do we get there? You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, as I was reading this through, it's not exactly what I would have expected Paul, you know where to go. He, I would expect him to go. But he gives us pastors and preachers a good opportunity to say something, because there's a massive lesson for us that I wanted to start out with, that I believe is so critical, and it's the reason why Paul can go from resurrection to collecting money. It's critical to living the Christian life. It's critical to preaching. It's critical to parenting. It's critical to um, shepherding, to helping people grow in Christ. Now what you have in chapter 15 is a tremendous amount of theology. It is deep, it is Christ-focused. It is kingdom-focused, I'm talking about the glory of God. It's incredible. Christ raised and Christ as first fruits for us for a real future bodily resurrection. I mean, if Jesus really re- rose from the dead, his point in 1 Corinthians 15 is, then so will you. It is as certain as that. Well, that's good stuff. And then you get to sixteen one, and you have this collection of money. And he goes real practical giving money. And in those two things, you have the lesson, don't you? Listen, beloved. Our doctrine, our theology is never separated from our living. Let me say it a different way. The theology of the resurrection is never separated from your bank account. Never. From the practical, sound theology makes for a sound person. If you really embrace the theology, then you'll be willing to embrace the life. You see? In other words, you can't say that you're a resurrection person and then refuse to be a righteous person. You can't say that I want my eyes to be up there where there is propitiation, but I don't want to be down here where there's principle. And so you go from way up in the heavenlies and talking about glorified living to down here where the boots are on the ground to everyday living, right? In fact, all of 1 Corinthians 16 is about the church in motion. Mark that there, and it's there in your notes, so that we understand all of chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians is the church in motion. This is what theology looks like once it gets moving. Living out the theology of chapter 15. If all of that is true, then live this way, see. You say, live how? Let me give you the four focuses on Christian living that sound doctrine like the resurrection shapes. I'm going to give you the outline for the whole chapter. Here we go. First, it it touches these boots on the ground, our giving, and that's verses 1 through 4. Secondly, our working, and that's verses 5 through 12. And by working, I mean... Service that is getting moving, yeah, getting going. I love that little book that's out there. I think what's it called? Just do something. <laughs> you know, that's verses five through twelve. Third, it has impact on our trusting. You've embraced the resurrection; it will it will impact your trusting, how you trust the Lord in your life, and then fourth. And final, and by the way, those are, that's verses 13 and 14. And then final, our loving. And that's verses 14 through 24. You could say our fellowship if you want. Our loving. Or our loving fellowship. And the end of this incredible letter ends with that. Now it's fitting that it ends with love. With fellowship, right? so chapter 16 is really the church in motion. And I find that also fitting after telling us in verse 58 of the last chapter, be immovable. Don't move. Now, in other words, there are areas about us where we cannot move. We must be immovable. And then there's a part of us that must get moving. We should be immovable in our doctrine. We should be immovable when it comes to what we believe about the resurrection. When it comes to what we believe about justification by faith. But we need to get moving in a different way. Yes, we're to be steadfast. We're to be grounded when it comes to facing this life in light of the fact that we have such an incredible future. But he then says, get moving. And so the church moves in a certain direction, see. And this first one is on giving. Giving money. You say, oh, I knew it. Here's another sermon on giving money, right? Listen, I don't know if, if you've been here for a while, you've noticed we don't really talk a lot about that. In fact, I can't even remember the last time I preached on giving. I suppose i can go back and look at my files, but I bet you it'd be somewhere close to the year twenty thirteen or fourteen or something like that. It's been a while. You wanna know why we don't give messages on giving? He says because we're so good at it, right? Well <laughs> No, I mean you can think that, I mean, but you know we just let the scripture speak, right? I mean, so we just go to the next verse. And so if the next verse is on giving, you know, we, we're going to talk about giving. Just, hey, it's like what the one, one guy uh, up in uh, Canada once said, you know, you open book, open God's book and you open God's mouth, right? And so that's what we're doing. We're, we just let God speak to us through his word. So because we preach verse by verse and we're committed to that, if the next verse is about giving, then we let the Holy Spirit tell us what to talk about. He determines our subjects, right? So he wants us to learn about giving over these next four verses. So we're going to do that. Now, what Paul does here is illustrate what we just said, that doctrine is for living. In fact, what you have here is a collection of money to help the poor and on the surface it doesn't look like much but I tell you there is a lot here in fact I strained out eight principles on giving that will really help you and me practically when it comes to our life and our money now let's start right here Jesus said in Matthew 6 remember this he said that where your treasure is so be your what Your heart. We need to start right there. You might think that, oh, we're talking about giving money. No, we're actually talking about your heart. That's really what we're going to spend time talking about. Eight principles on the heart as it relates to giving. Your money then indicates where your heart is. Where your heart is attached to what things it's attached to, what you're willing to commit or sacrifice that you think will bring you supposed security. Okay? Now, as we work this through, we need to have a certain mentality, and that is this, that all of Christianity operates this way, from the top down. The top down. And I mean, when I say top, obviously, I mean heaven. I mean, this is why in Matthew 6, Jesus said, pray this way, that kingdom come, right? May it be done on earth as it is, and where? In heaven. In other words, kingdom living should be from the top down. From heaven to earth. Heaven's truth touching earthly living, and that's just what Paul was getting at with Titus in the very first verse of the letter that he wrote him. Listen, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. First, there's knowledge. That's, that's the, the information, the truth from heaven that he wants us to receive. But it is always attached to godliness. Godliness. The Lord has no interest in academic Christians. If you want to memorize scripture, that's great. If you want to memorize it to be a debater, you might think that through a little better. If you want to memorize it so that you can win some Bible bowl, you really might think that better. I mean, he has no interest in people that know the right stuff, people that are smart and can debate. He has no interest in that. If it doesn't produce godliness in your living, then he doesn't care how much you know. See? In other words, the knowledge has to be, has to have function. It's gotta go somewhere. It's gotta be, you ever have that? mean, you go to school, and you're learning stuff, especially in colleges where they're filling your brain up and all that. You got those ginormous books and you make sure that you buy the used ones because you're thinking to yourself, I want to buy them cheap because I'm selling it I'm here in about, you know, 15 minutes, right? But you get, you get this, this stuff. And do you ever think that to yourself? What am I going to do with all this stuff that I'm learning? And you maybe even get a degree and you think to yourself, One-tenth of everything I learned with that degree am I now applying in this particular job. Well, you know what's wonderful about being a Christian in this book? 100% of this can be turned into application. All of it. This is not like school where you have stuff that you go, well, can't use that. Uh Uh-uh. God gives us just what we need to be able to live it out. Now you see this sort of thing in 2 Peter 3, just like 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is coming back, and and he says, I'm looking for the coming day of the Lord, Now watch this, since all these things are to be destroyed, and he talked about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, and the elements are going to be destroyed, and, and so forth, in this way, he says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for the coming of the day? The resurrection doctrine is for holiness. The reason the curtains get thrown open on the future is so you can be motivated to live in the present, okay? It's for, it's for the now. You say, oh, oh, he's talking about the future. Listen, only so that you can live for the now. Long enough so that you can live for the now. that's what Titus, Titus 2.13 is all about. That's what it's meaning when it's, he says that. And so what Paul is saying in First 1 Corinthians 16.1, and here is the tie, is that knowing the future should have impact on something as mundane as putting money into a collection. I mean, think about it. If we're going to be leaving this body for a glorious transformed one, then why are we investing so much into it? Right? What are we doing? Stop investing into it so much. I mean, where should we invest? Into the heavenly body, into spiritual things. There's the tie. Now having said that, look at verse one. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints. Then we need to talk a little bit about the background to the collection for the saints, definitive article here, the collection. In other words, he's talking about a particular kind of collection. Now, it has principle for all of our collection, if you will. But he's talking about a particular collection. Now, what is that? What is this collection? Well, it was a. We have to think about what the world was like back then. It was a world um, full of poverty. It was more poverty than it was riches. In fact, poverty, unlike what we experience, especially in America. I mean, you see a little bit of that poverty maybe when you go down to places like Mexico. I remember uh, going uh, through Nogales on my way. So we went through Tucson, from Tucson going into deep into Mexico. And you go get to this little border place called Nogales. And it's not little. But one of the things that stood out to me was all these cardboard boxes. And as I'm looking at these on the hill, they had this little hill, I was driving by, and the cardboard boxes, what is that? Oh, that's where people live, in the cardboard boxes. It's crazy. There's just litter and garbage everywhere, all over the ground. And that was just a statement, really, of their poverty. Now, apparently in the Greek society, there were groups designed to help relieve poverty. But um, you didn't really have much of that around the world, but you did have some of it. And the Greeks that helped were pagan. You had a little bit of that with the Jews as well, and you might receive that help through the synagogue. So if you were attached to the synagogue, and you should be as a Jew, you could get help there. And in fact, if you look back in the Old Testament, um, in their system, it was designed to help the poor. You read through Leviticus, and I think it's Leviticus 18, which speaks to this very thing. It's where we get the verse of loving your neighbor as you love yourself, and it's where you have a field, and you know, with that field, you are to have that field uh, when you're done grazing it and done taking. Doing all the work that you have, you left a corner of it untouched so that the poor might be able to come to that corner and just get a little bit of that crop there. You remember that box of giving that the Pharisee rang a bell for in Luke chapter, end of Luke chapter 20, the beginning of Luke chapter 21, and that was giving but it was controlled by the religious leaders who abused that and fed fed themselves. But there was some type of an awareness that you had poverty and we were going to address that poverty. Now, I tell you that, and here's the point. Both the pagans and the Jews had systems to take care of the poor, even if they were broken down a little. So here comes the church. And she preaches a doctrine of love. Poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit of salvation, Romans 5. We of all helping groups then should stand out because we have this theology of love, right? We should stand out as those that help others in their need. Now, my concern for the church today is that we live in an age where we rely so much on the government for answers to help the poor. And if the government wants to do that, that's fine. It might be a means of grace that the Lord uses. That's fine. That's their prerogative. But our hearts should be deep towards the poor. And let me say it in a different way, in a way that will hopefully will kind of uh, give you sharper image regarding this passage and what he's saying here. Our hearts should be deep towards the poor that are right here among us. Right here. And so you had a lot of poverty going on in that day, but it's, but listen, especially in Israel, and we're going to get to that in a moment, Now, with Paul, it was a big deal to show help to the poor, to pour love on the poor. Right after Paul became a a Christian and then spent years growing as a believer, when it was time for him to be commissioned and go out into, into the ministry, him and Barnabas, he was exhorted this way by leaders in Jerusalem, Galatians 2 recognizing the grace given to me, James and Cephas and John pillars. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. In other words, they told us, hey guys, we are for you, but we have something that we got to tell you. He said, listen, we want you to go to the Gentiles and we'll go to the circumcised. That's what they told Paul and Barnabas. And Paul says they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that we wanted to do anyway. That we were eager to do. Remember the poor. And the reason why they said that is because they were saying, hey, remember the poor, but especially the poor here in Jerusalem. Now go back to this collection in First Corinthians sixteen one look at it who's the collection of money for what's it say verse 1 for the saints christians okay verse 3 i will send them with letters to carry your gift to where jerusalem So the collection was to help the poor in Jerusalem, okay? Not just any poor, but the poor Christians there. And you read Romans 15, and it took Paul over a year to collect this gift for the saints in Jerusalem. Now, speaking of Romans 15, turn there for just a brief moment. I want you to look at Romans 15. Just take a left from... First Corinthians, and you're right there. Verses 14 to 21, The Lord has given me this unique ministry to the Gentiles to bring the gospel to them, he says. And I wanted to visit you believers in Rome, but the Lord had prevented it. Why? Well, the Lord had a job for, for Paul first. What was that job? Making, getting this collection together. Verse 25, But now I am going to Jerusalem Serving the saints. What saints? Verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Paul has been busy collecting money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. But notice Achaia gave too. You see, well, why is that a big deal? Because Corinth is located in Achaia. The church at Corinth. Now, why was Paul so focused on the poor Christians at Jerusalem? Weren't there, you know, other poor believers around the world that he could have collected for? Yes. But let me give you some thoughts here. And we'll start in Romans 1:16. Uh What's it say there? Salvation is to the, the Jew first. And so he always had this sense of um, connectivity to the Jews, right? I mean, he never forgot them. Now, I was thinking about this very question of why, after reading a bunch of commentators this last week, about why collect for the Jews... And the the reason why I was thinking about it was because most of them didn't really address the situation of why Jerusalem and how did they get so poor there. That was on my mind so much. I said, oh, it's, this is so important to Paul. Why is he doing this? What is this? How did Jerusalem get to this place of such a need? Well, let me give you a few thoughts about that. And uh, I can't remember how many I have. I might have like, I don't know, a handful of them. Here we go. First, they are poor there because of their current place in history. Their current place in history. Now, I want you to think about them, and you, and, and I bet you could figure this out too if you worked it through. You go back to David and Solomon, and you remember what was uh, what they had in common. Boy, that was that. Those were the days. Those were the good old days, the, the glory years, the golden years, right? They had, there was so much wealth and so much going on and you had, you know, these were great years, wealthy years, food, resources, money, Queen of Sheba, you had Syria and King Hiram of Tyre and all sorts of people that were benefactor, benefactors to them and, and there was security and it was booming economy and all of this was right around 930. A D or B C. And then they took a turn spiritually. And gradually it became the lead the lead years. And you get to the end of the six hundreds and into the five hundreds, and then they went into captivity into Assyria and Babylon. And in fact, if you want to know just how bad it got, you can read the story there with Elisha where they had reverted to cannibalism, eating their own children because they were starving. And all of that is due to how poor they were spiritually. They never got back to the golden days, by the way, because you go to Jesus and Paul's day and it's poverty all over Israel. Everywhere. Now, there's another reason why the saints in Jerusalem are poor. The first reason is historical. The second reason, let's call sociological. Sociological. Jerusalem would swell up to 2 million people during the festivals and, boy, what are you going to do with all these people? Right? You got to feed them. He had all these Jews that were scattered because of persecution and so many places and they would come during these festivals and and so there was always a need to feed. Displaced Jews but visiting and bringing need and no way to create economy. Now by the way, that's why you see for example John chapter 2, remember that? Um, they were selling in the temple. Why were they doing that? You say, well, because they're evil people, I mean, they're just trying to take advantage of the system. Well, that's true, but what made them finally say, all right, we'll do that, is desperation. And the desperation was because of the poverty. And so they're taking advantage of people and trying to squeeze money out of people, abusing the temple offerings. and, And so it was just a drain on the city. Let me give you a third reason for their poverty. And that reason we can call spiritual. Now, this to me is the biggest one. In Acts chapter 8, the church is scattered. Do you remember why they were scattered? Persecution, right? Now, how was the church in Jerusalem being persecuted? Not only physically, we know this. Remember, Herod had James beheaded there. Acts, speaks of that, Acts 12. But not only that, not only physical, but also there was a oppressive, uh, they were being oppressed. Many of them were having to give up their businesses because nobody was giving them business because they are Christians. And they were taking licenses away and so forth. And so that you have no real way to create economy for your family, for your church. It's the reason why you get to Acts four, and Barnabas is selling his stuff as a wealthy man to take care of the poor that are right there. So you had a lot of poor believers dependent on the love, grace, and mercy of other believers. 1 Thessalonians 2.14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us. That's what they do. And they were doing that in a massive way there in Jerusalem. So you see, they are poor because of spiritual choices. Follow Jesus Christ and lose your business. Acts 2, Acts 4, it says the church had all things in common, so there was not a needy one among them. And the idea is they were pulling it all together to help each other through this. It wasn't, they weren't trying to establish communism. They were just trying to take care of what they had, the, the big need. Okay? Okay. Now you could have one more reason to their poverty and that is a prophetical one. Prophetical one. Acts 11. Remember Agabus? He prophesied of a famine. And there was a four year famine. And that famine had a great impact on the economy. On the ability to meet your own needs. And so here is Paul, and he is compelled to take a collection from the saints in the churches that he had started. You say, what compels him? Love, right? Love for Christ that overflows into love for the saints, especially the ones in Jerusalem. You say, shouldn't Paul have had that kind of focus on all people? Sure. But listen to this here. And I want you to hear this because this kind of sets it's very helpful, I think, for us as a church to hear things like this. Galatians 6.10. Here's how Paul thought about things. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Always be ready to do good to all people. Somebody comes, they have a need, you have it, give it to them. Why not, right? Then he says this, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith, especially the saints, Hey, be ready to help all people, but especially help Christians. Especially help the ones that are a part of your church. Especially. Sometimes I think we we need this lesson in the in the in the worst way, even in our own homes. Right? Does that ever? you ever feel that way? You ever kind of gravitate this way? You don't even know why. Where. Your own spouse or your own children can maybe get the worst of it from you while you're show, you're lavishing on other people. It's the opposite of how the Lord would have it, by the way. Especially take care of the household. Especially. You take care of, of, of them. Christians first, see. Meet their needs first. Now, this church at Corinth knew about the kind of the, that kind of heart, and Paul, you know, that kind of approach to meeting needs. And, and, and I mean, they knew Paul was was making a collection. And you know, so look at it. Notice in verse one. Now, concerning the collection, the word "now" is a word that he's used all throughout First Corinthians, and whatever you see "now concerning," peri day in the Greek. It is uh, has to do with questions that they had that they want Paul to answer. This is the next and last question that this church had. What about the collection, Paul? What's our role in that? What are your expectations? Listen, not just theology for doctrine, but theology for love. How do you guide us in this? Paul goes around collecting from all kinds of churches, and it really becomes one... Massive statement that flows from theology to love. And this is so big, it's, it really, it's so important how Paul addresses this. You say, how come? Because it ties together some really crucial things, and in particular, unity and love that's connected to doctrine. Turn for a moment to Ephesians 2 as I show you this. I am definitely setting up the table here. We're probably just going to scratch our first two points, and that's okay. I kind of thought that's how things would work. Um, No worries. We're not, you know, you don't have to go order, you know, get on your phones right now and order lunch. I'm going to be here for a while. Maybe I can get them the DoorDash or something. I don't know. Verses 1 through 10. You were dead in your sins. The gospel came. Grace in Jesus Christ came. You believed, right? He saved you and now you've been given a life opportunity with good deeds to walk in. That's verse 10. Verses 11 and 12. You Gentiles were brought together with the Jews that believed. How? Verse 13, same way, by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Now, why is that important for this collection in Corinth? A couple of reasons. First, both groups exist in this church. You have believing Jews and you had believing Greeks. But second, because this is an opportunity to show that the theology of God in making the two one by the blood of Christ is real. And you can join in this by demonstrating your love to the believing Jews in Jerusalem. Show that. Show that that's true. They have this need and you with this collection can take care of that need and demonstrate your love to them. Now in a real sense, this is what the extension of fellowship looks like. You know, you can't be there personally, but your money can. This is the whole idea of give it to missionaries, right? No wonder in quite a few places, Second Corinthians 8 9, Romans 15, I think also in Philippians 1, the word koinonia is translated collection or a sharing of your money. The word koinonia is usually the word for fellowship. And so literally the word means a sharing. It's not only a sharing of money, but a sharing of life, a sharing of love. And that's what Paul has in mind in verse one when he says, now concerning the collection for the saints. And what I'm going to show you are some principles for this collection. And in it we gain some principles for giving in general that I hope you take away. We only have time for a few so this morning, so we'll cover as much as we can. Eight principles on giving for the believers. Let's start with the first one. First, the reason for giving. The reason for giving. Now, why give? Okay? Why give? It's a great question. We all need to work through that, right? Why give? Why should I give? So I say I got this little money. I got it in my pocket. Got it in my checkbook. Why give? Now, by the way, you notice that we don't have a collection plate here. We have a little box in the back. And uh, we do that because people can be as, as anonymous as possible that way, and, and but worshipful as well. But why give? He says why in verse 1. This is the purpose. Concerning the collection, three words, for The saints. Why do we give? To take care of the church, see. To to household of faith first, right? You look in Acts two, Acts four, and even Acts six, take care of those in the family. Not a needy one, it says among them. He says, so you don't ever give to help people outside the church? What about the care groups, like the ones that reach out to the pregnant moms and so forth in emergency situations that feel so overwhelmed? I mean, wouldn't we give to that? Yes. Yes. We don't ignore people like that, do we? No, we, Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan, right? You love your neighbor." We can still give that direction, but the family first. See? Now watch how all this gets worked out. When we talk about giving for the saints first, we talk about giving to support the church as a whole. So that's what our giving does. It just really is a, to support the church as a whole for the saints. It's to meet needs physically so that we meet the greater need spiritually. It's unity and love coming together. In other words, you share your resources to help others in the body because you're here to share your life. It's not just the money. It's not just the function, the practical. It's, it's sharing the life. Hebrews 13, 16, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And again, what's implied there is not just sharing your money, but sharing your life. Or Acts 20, verse 35, and everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, he said, working hard in this manner. What manner? Well, he just back up a few verses and he just got done saying, shepherd the church of God. You work hard at shepherding and it will help you see the needs and then you can take care of those needs too. And so in Acts 2 and 4 and 6, in that way, we give to support the church, the people in it, the saints first. But not only that, the Bible directs the reason we give in another direction, that is to support our leaders. Now, you see this over and over in Scripture. Paul made this point in Philippians 4. He made this point in 1 Corinthians 9. Remember when we studied that? And in that section, Paul said the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul said, I have a right to be paid. And you remember Paul said that even though he didn't ask for it, he never charged for the gospel. He never charged for the gospel. But he had the right to. He just didn't do it. And by the way, that's the point in 2 Timothy 2 with the farmer analogy. The hard working farmer ought to be the first to receive the share of the crops. In other words, he did all that work. It's okay for you to enjoy the fruit of your labors. He said, Well, so you did have all this corn everywhere, yep. You could take a portion of that for yourself? Yes. That's the whole idea of being able to do that. fruit of his preaching. 1 Timothy uh, 5.17 makes this point clear. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. That phrase double honor has to do with money, with paying them, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And then in verse 18, it says not to muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, the point of that Feed that beast while he works and you'll get better production. Now there's a thought, right? Feed the beast while he works, you're going to get better production. Don't muzzle him. Don't put a muzzle over and say, hey, do the work and we'll let you know when we're going to get you food, ox. That's cruel. That's... um, It's not really being kind, right? Feed that elder for his work while he works, and you're going to get better teaching, better shepherding, better preaching. That's the idea. The word elder is a synonym for pastor. Same thing. An elder is a pastor, is a shepherd, is a bishop, is an overseer, all the same person. And what you have is different kinds of support based on The work. But what he's trying to say here is we give to support the church and the needs there, and we give to support the church leaders, the ones who feed us. And in that, you have another idea, and that is the idea of exchange. The pastor gives you his hard work, you support him, he gives more work. You keep supporting and it just kind of goes in this little cycle deal. That's why we give. That is the reason for the collection because Jerusalem had been faithful to produce all these teachers. And he says, let's take care of them. The gospel came from there. So Paul says, support that. Now that's the first principle of giving the the reason for giving to support the saints, all of them, all the leaders who preach and teach the word of God to us. And in case any person in the church is thinking, Hey, but why single us out like this? Paul says in verse one, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. He says, this is, this is the standard for all churches. So that's the first principle in giving. Second one, this will be the last one we, we hit at here for this morning, the routine when giving. When should you give, right? This deals with the when. Go to verse two, first part. On the first day of every week. When? On the first day of every week. You say, well, when is that? Well, the first day of every week was the day after sabbath sunday sunday you say why that day because that is the day jesus gave the church jesus gave the church that very term he rose That became the Lord's day. That's why we call it the Lord's day. Now follow here for a moment. Jesus started this, by the way. Look for a moment at John chapter 20. Verse 19. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, here you have the disciples, they're together, okay? Jesus came to them and stood in their midst on that day. Now, Thomas wasn't with them. And so they told Thomas, hey, the Lord came. And of course, Thomas didn't believe them. So verse 26, look at verse 26. After eight days... His disciples were again inside. Now understand something. That's a Jewish way of saying exactly one week later to the day. Remember they had different ways of looking at days in terms of sunrise and sunset. That's why I could say eight. Jesus came on that same day. You say maybe it's a coincidence. No, actually that became the pattern where they met, where they gathered, the resurrection day, and it became known as the Lord's day. He you... said, "Well, I'm not still not sure. That's okay. I'll help you." Acts chapter twenty, verse seven. Listen, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread and gather gather for the preaching, it says there. First day. When is that? Sunday. They gathered for the preaching and the breaking of bread on a Sunday. The first church gathered together not on the Sabbath, but on the resurrection day, Sunday. You're still not sure? Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. This is John the Apostle. And he's, he's talking and he's in the 90s. 90s AD, 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Oh, What day is that, John? Well, we know. He's just saying, this is the day we gather. And it just became that. He assumes they all know. Now, why be on that day? For a few reasons. First of all, Jesus gave us the pattern, right? But secondly, it emphasized the resurrection. Without that, there is no gospel, right? And then let me give you a third third reason. It helped Christians understand the purpose of the Sabbath. It helped Christians understand the purpose of the Sabbath. Hey, If we're not going to, they weren't trying to say, hey, let's not be like the Jews. Let's be different. No. The, The Jews met on the Sabbath. Synagogue. But the believers, the Christians understood the purpose of the Sabbath. What was that? Colossians 2 verse 16. No one is to act as your judge in regard to a Sabbath day. Don't judge people for not gathering together on the Sabbath. For eating a ham sandwich on the Sabbath. For mowing a lawn on the Sabbath. Why? Verse 17. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, the Sabbath of the old testament was meant to point to the sabbath of the new testament. What is the sabbath of the new testament? You say it's just Sunday. No. Read Hebrews 4. It's Jesus Christ. He's our sabbath. The Lord himself is our sabbath. And so to have him is to have the sabbath. Do you know what the word sabbath means? The idea of it is rest. Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, come to me and I'll give you what? Rest. He is our rest. Hebrews 4, the Lord has become our rest. Just telling you what scripture says. In other words, the reason we were free to meet on... Resurrection Day on Sunday was because there was no Sabbath issue anymore. Why? Because Jesus is our Sabbath. And if you have Jesus, you have the Sabbath every day. Our rest is every day. Jesus said that very thing, that He is our rest. And so we meet on the Lord's Day and not on the Sabbath. You say, what's that all have to do with giving? Right? Well, I'm glad you asked that. He says, give on that day. (laughs) Why? Because it establishes a few things. First, it establishes the priority of your life. You have all things because of the Lord, and so you give on that day. Connect what you own, your giving to the Lord In fact, it's not even that you give so much to support the church. That's practical, but you give to him. There is a connection here. Secondly, it also regulates an accountability. Give every week, he says. Why? Because there's a connection of giving and worship. And what you do with your money is an indicator of your heart. It is, it is your stewardship. If you recognize that God gave you this money, that you have success and production and money because he's given it to you, if you recognize that, then it's going to be easier to, to, to give it where the Lord wants you to give it, right? If you recognize that he gave it to you, just give it to him. So you, you do that and, you, and, and to give it when, you know, when he wants you to. By the way, Jesus told us many times that our money is a gauge of the spirituality of our heart, what we do with it. Matthew 6, for where your treasure is, so is your heart. Luke 16, if you have been faithful with unrighteous mammon, unrighteous money, then the Lord will entrust the true riches to you. Now what does that mean? Listen to this. That if you can't handle something as crude as material things, material wealth, something so mundane and basic as money, how will you ever be able to handle souls? Why would the Lord entrust any soul to you to care for How you handle your money is an indicator of where you are at spiritually. That's the point in Matthew 6 and Hebrews 13 and Luke 16 and First Timothy all over the Bible. Listen, you don't own one cent. It all belongs to Him. So how you handle that shows God everything about your heart. I mean, What a convicting thing. So when he says, give every Lord's day, every week, it's a way for the Lord to say, deal with your heart every week. Come face to face with how tight your grip is on your treasure, on material things in this life. Now, you say, does it have to be every week? I mean, what if I get paid every other week? Or, you know, once a month. Well, I mean, you could budget it for every week but I don't believe that that's his, he's not making a legalistic point here. He's not saying, listen, if you don't do this every week, you're in sin. He's creating a pattern here to help you understand the flow of it. Make it, this, make it be a big deal. That's what he's saying. Regulate it so that it's clear that it's a big deal. Because where your treasure is, so is your heart. So deal with it every week right here. It's not meant to be something that is on your terms. Well, I give when I want to give. Listen, it should be voluntarily out of the freeness of your heart, but it's not your terms. We tend to think of it as our terms when we think it's our money. You give how he wants you to give. And Luke 6 says, you'll be blessed greatly, overflowing. That's good stuff. Alright, two principles on giving. We know why to give to support the church and the leaders of the church. We know when to give, the Lord's Day, as worship, as stewardship. And there are six more principles to get to so that we can understand about giving. And, uh, and I tell you, beloved, as we tackle all of this let's not let this be something that is um, it's it's personal yeah it's private in, in a sense let's let it be before the Lord because we so much want to just have nothing as an obstacle in our way of loving him and serving him and serving others amen let's pray Father, thank you for your word, and Lord, what a challenging thing to talk about. But um, at the same time, because it's challenging, because we don't ever want to get up uh, up on a perch and think that we are um, that we've arrived when it comes to these things. Keep showing us our heart, Lord. Help us to give in the way that you gave, and I and I think of John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. You gave sacrificially. Help us to be similar kind of givers. Not so that we can uh, boast or talk about how much money we have or whatever, but so that, or, or even make it look like we're so spiritual because we give, but just because we love you. Help us to get to that place, we pray. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.